0: amen in the bible the way we walk means more than just how we move our feet it refers to how we live our lives it's more about our lifestyle than simply our gait. beginning in chapter 4 paul tells us how to move through life as believers in jesus and in chapter 5 the theme continues that we're to walk in love Walk in the light, walk in wisdom, and walk in submission to one another. Chapter 5 begins, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. You know, kids are prone to mimic their heroes. When I was a child, my dad was my hero. And I would sit in the bathroom and I would watch my dad brush his teeth. Well, dad wore dentures, and so he'd pull out his plate And he'd brush his dentures, you know. And my mom recounts how she would walk in on me at times and I'd be brushing my imaginary dentures, mimicking my dad. God wants us to mimic him. We should walk as Jesus walked. And here's how, verse 2, walk in love. My psychology book in college defined the word love as an agitated state of psychological arousal. But is that real love? Imagine gazing into your honey's eyes and whispering, Baby, you agitate my psyche. I believe love is more than a burning brainwave, it's more than a feeling or an emotion. For the true definition of love, we have to look to its author. On the cross, Jesus showed us the meaning of true love. Paul states it in verse 2 and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. According to Jesus' example, genuine love consists of giving and offering and sacrificing. It's a commitment. Amy Carmichael wrote, You can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Jesus gave up his rights. His security, His comfort. He sacrificed it all to save us. And from now on, sacrifice, the plumb line for real love is sacrifice. Verse 3 tells us, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as it's fitting for saints. Paul clumps three evils together, fornication and uncleanness and covetousness. See, love is all about giving, whereas lust is all about getting. Two stray dogs in an alley like each other enough to have sex. But that's not love. True love willingly waits. It never uses or defiles or dishonors the one it loves. Love lays down what I want and lives for God's best. A Christian will preserve the purity of their future spouse. Christians are called... To love one another. Reminds me of the two lovers. The woman asked the man, do you love me? The man replied, yes honey, I love you. She asked again, would you die for me? To which he replied, sorry, mine is an undying devotion. And here's the point. Love that won't die to self-centeredness and selfishness is not real love at all. Paul continues describing what love avoids. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by what makes them laugh. Paul says neither crude humor, or borderline banter, or sexual innuendo should come from a Christian. Our vocal cords should vibrate with thanksgiving to God. And then verse 5, For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Here are three folks who won't go to heaven. None of them are capable of restraint. The fornicator's downfall is lust. The unclean person's downfall is independence. The covetous person's downfall is greed. All three of these people are out of control. Life to them is about their libido and their will and their wallet. They lack morals. But it's not just a moral problem. It's also a spiritual problem. For notice, this person is called an idolater. You know, most of today's Americans would never bow before a statue. But they worship sex. And they worship independence. And they worship money. And when you value something supremely and pursue it at all costs, it becomes the equivalent of an idol. Idolatry is far from dead. Reminds me of the young businessman who flipped his car over the guardrail, rolled down a steep embankment. The twisted metal actually severed off his arm right at the elbow. But when the hero units finally reached him, the guy just kept whining. Oh, my BMW." Oh my BMW. Well the paramedics were appalled that all this guy could think about. He was so materialistic, all he could think about was his car. One of the MTs he scolded him and he said, Buddy, you've got a lot more to worry about than that car. You know, your arm was chopped off in the accident. Well, the man suddenly gets this panic look on his face and he starts crying. Oh my Rolex. Oh my Rolex. The moral of the story is be careful what you worship. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words or with false assurances. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Guys, God is no fool. You can say you worship God, but in reality, worship sex or self or stuff. It's not what you say that matters to God. It's the pursuit of your heart. Verse 7 warns, those of us who are Christians not to follow idols, therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Notice, according to Paul, we didn't just walk in darkness, we were darkness. Darkness lived inside of us. And now that we're in Christ, we don't just walk in light, we are light. Changes occur deep within a Christian. We don't just change environments when we come to Christ. We become a new person. The light of God now shines from us. A Christian, you could call a Christian a spiritual firefly. He or she lights up a dark world. Are you a lightning bug in Christ Jesus? You should be. Paul encourages us to walk as children of light for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Note the three components here, the three divine rays that make up the light of God within us. Goodness to others, rightness before God, and truth in all things. And then verse 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, You know, in the wintertime, northern cities, they salt the roads to clear them of ice and snow. And thus, a mixture of exhaust and salt and snow gets kind of plastered onto the sides of the cars. All the cars end up looking a murky gray. But on the first semi-like spring day, some fellow will wash his car and he'll restore it to its original color. And when everyone else on the block sees the one clean car, guess what? They realize how dirty their cars have become. And as Christians, we are called to be the one clean car. Without condemning anyone, without being judgmental, we've been called to expose the darkness by shining God's light. He says, for it is shameful even to speak of those things, which are done by them in secret. You know, some sins are so shameful, they shouldn't even be mentioned. Nothing's gained by talking about them. They're best left to silence. And we drive out the darkness, not by studying it, not by discussing it, not by talking about it, not by fighting it, but by shining the light. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. What the world needs from us is to walk in God's light. Therefore, he says that he being Isaiah, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. We need to be wide awake to God's concerns. Are you wide awake spiritually? You know, a battle rages around us. And it's obvious that the world we live in is asleep in the dark. But what's more tragic is that so often the church is asleep in the light. We need to wake up. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Circumspectly means to walk gingerly or to be careful where you plant your feet. I learned to walk circumspectly when my kids were toddlers. My boys loved to play with Legos. And invariably, the Legos wouldn't all get picked up. Usually the Legos were found in the middle of the night by me as I stumbled through the house. I'd step on a Lego and oh my! It hurt. I learned to walk circumspectly or carefully. And this is how we should walk in a dark world. You know, Satan is notorious for throwing banana peels on the sidewalk. One false move can cause years of pain and agony. Some of you will remember Jim Baker. He was a TV preacher in the 1970s before a sordid affair knocked him out of the limelight. I'll never forget Jim Baker's comment after his fall. He said, it's amazing how 15 minutes can ruin your life. What a warning for us. Let's walk circumspectly and be careful where we move and how we move through this life. And here's how to walk circumspectly. First, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Are you redeeming the time? Hey, did you know that if you live to be 70 years old and throughout your life you work five days a week, eight hours a day, you sleep eight hours a night, you travel about an hour each day, and you spend two hours eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then add an hour for grooming and hygiene. Hopefully you do that. Here's how much discretionary time you have left. If you're 20 years old today, you've got about 13 years left to invest in non-mandatory activities. Just 13 years is all you got left. If you're 35, you've got just nine years left. If you're 45, you've got only six and a half years. To do as you please. If you're 55, it's down to four years. And if you're 65, you've got less than 16 months to spend your life as you see fit. I'm telling you, time is flying. It's running out. And if you want to live your life to count for God's kingdom, you can't let a second of your time be wasted on sin. Paul writes, Therefore, do not be unwise. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And here is His will. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. You remember on the Feast of Pentecost, the original disciples, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the onlookers accused them of being drunk. You remember that. There are ways being filled with the Holy Spirit is like being drunk with wine. God's Spirit can suppress natural inhibitions. The Spirit of God impacts our thinking and affects our disposition. Ultimately, He influences our behavior. The difference is that alcohol causes dissipation, (coughs) which is another word for disorientation. It clouds my perspective. It deadens my senses. While the Holy Spirit does just the opposite, He brings clarity to my life. He heightens my awareness of God. The distilled Spirit's can send me into a tailspin, whereas the Holy Spirit will help me gain and maintain control. And the one thing the Holy Spirit produces is joy. He produces a spiritual high. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're prone to uninhibited worship, and thus Paul says in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never done so, you need to ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. You can do that today. Well, verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, to walk worthy of our calling, let's walk in love, let's walk in light, let's walk in wisdom. Let's walk in submission to one another. And some of you know what's coming next. You've already read verse 22. Wives submit to your husbands. That's why the wives are cringing and the husbands are now perking up. But before Paul says a word about wives submitting to husbands, notice he tells us all to submit to one another. Hey, when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, my needs are met so I can focus on the needs of other people, even my family. That's why the key to marriage is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It makes you an other-centered person. It's been said two people can have a happy marriage only after they get a divorce from themselves. It's true. But once we take to heart verse 21, then verse 22 applies. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I'm reminded of the man who asked the librarian to help him find the book titled Man, Master of His Home. The woman pointed to the fiction section. (laughs) Indeed, Paul's instructions for husbands and wives won't win any awards for political correctness. In fact, today few marriages are ordered biblically. But take note Today, very few marriages last. Just pay attention. Hey, before you toss out God's wisdom, you should take a second look. First realize what Paul is not saying here. No wife should become a doormat for a selfish and abusive husband. The Greek word translated submit is hupotasso. It means to arrange under or to line up behind. Biblical submission doesn't mean that a wife can't have a life. But she's to arrange her life around her husband's. You could say the husband sketches out the lines of the picture and then the wife colors in between those lines. Both parties contribute equal to the painting, but they play different roles. It's an ordered equality. You know, if someone says, you're running around like a chicken with their head cut off. Understand, that's not a compliment. All bodies need a head. Not two heads. Not no head. But one head. And that's why God established a single head over the family. And it is the husband's role to supply that leadership while his wife is to lend her support. Billy Graham's wife Ruth once commented, The best advice I can give to unmarried girls is to marry someone you don't mind adjusting to. God tailors the wife to fit the husband, not the husband, to fit the wife. He says, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now notice, roles in a marriage aren't assigned arbitrarily. In marriage, God is painting a picture of realities that go far beyond just domestic concerns. You see, the reason that your marriage and all marriages are such a big deal is that God has given to marriage universal, eternal, mystical meaning that transcends you and your spouse. Marriage is a spiritual snapshot. God has chosen to illustrate Christ's relationship with His church through your relationship with your spouse. This is what makes marriage special and even sacred. Kathy and I are co-stars in a heavenly production. I'm the leading man and she's the leading lady. And together we are portraying to our friends and family the greatest love story ever told, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it is so important that we play our parts well. And in my opinion, the most difficult role in the drama belongs to the husband. Verse 25, husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That gentleman is a tall order. A wife should love her husband enough to live for him. But a husband should love his wife enough to die for her. And not just once in some gallant act, but in a million daily ways. He should be willing to lay down his life to protect and nurture and minister to his wife. But there's more. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Guys, are we loving our wives in ways that refresh her? In ways that purify her and sanctify her? Are we pointing her to Jesus, His forgiveness, His acceptance? Or do we regurgitate her faults and failures? Do we treat her with grace or do we grade her on performance? Do I love my wife as Jesus loves me? I should. And here's the Lord's goal for His church. He might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus desires a glorious church. Though we're wounded, though we're wrinkled, though we have our age spots, he sees us with no spots. And this is how we need to treat our wives. Jesus is committed to cleansing us and escorting us into his glory. This is how a husband should treat a wife. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. As a man nourishes his body, a husband should help his wife grow as a person and as a Christian. Here's a question I have for you husbands this morning. Since she married you, has your wife gotten prettier or plainer? Is she flourishing or is she floundering? In other words, what have you been doing to help your wife grow and glow? It's been said, treat your wife like a thoroughbred and she'll never be a knack. A good husband enriches his life. He invests in her life. He doesn't smother her or stifle her. He loves her in a growing, in an enabling, in an empowering way. This is why I say the husband's job is tougher. Ladies, all you have to do is submit to his leadership. Just trust him to lead. Leave it in his hands. Support him in the process. That's your job. His job is to love you like Christ loves the church. And then verse 31 quotes Genesis chapter 2, God's original plan and purpose for marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Remember, marriage is a spiritual snapshot of Christ in His church. Here's how you... Here's how you get married. Here's what you do. If you're a single person uh, this morning, pay attention. This is what you should do. You need to leave at some point. Maybe not tomorrow, but at some point. You need to leave. You need to separate from your parents. Then you need to cleave. You need to dedicate or commit yourself to your spouse. And then you, as a married couple, begin to weave two lives together. There's this growing unification that requires a lifetime to accomplish. And so you leave, you cleave, and then you weave. And some of you might conceive. That's a good thing too. Verse 33 reiterates what both men and women need most. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now here is what men and women need. Women need love and men need respect. Marriage is a lot easier than you think it is. Women need love and men need respect. This is why husbands have been called to love their wives and wives have been called to respect their husbands. And this has a snowball effect. For when a husband loves his wife, what happens to her? She respects him, which prompts him to love her more, which prompts her to solicit more respect for him. And on and on this goes. The snowball creates this wonderful marriage. But the snowball can also roll in reverse. For if a husband feels disrespected, he'll withdraw from his wife. He won't love his wife as he should Which will fuel more disrespect in her. And then the beat goes on and on and on. Husbands need to love their wives. And wives need to respect their husbands. And who should start? Well, you should, fella. You should start. You're the man. You're the one that should take the initiative. And what about parents and kids? Well, chapter 6 tells us children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But note the qualification. In the Lord, God would never expect a wife or a child to submit to an ungodly or an immoral demand. That's a violation of God's will. It's been said, godly submission never requires what God forbids or forbids what God requires. But when a good parent desires God's best for their child, then the child needs to obey His or her parents. Verse 2. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. You'll live longer and you'll live better if you listen to your parents' wisdom. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The Greek word translated training, it means discipline. Admonition means encouragement. Martin Luther used to say that a parent needs both a rod and an apple to raise. Wait a minute. That's not the right apple. There you go. He meant a rod to spank the child when he rebels and an apple to reward his good and godly initiatives. In other words, raising children requires this healthy balance. Kids need both a rod of correction and a nod of approval. And it can't be too weighted one way or the other. They need that combination. As Christians, let's live out our high calling at home and on the job. For verse five tells us, Bond servants be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ." Now, the Roman world of Paul's day was full of slaves or bond servants. Some of you may think your boss treats you like a slave, but you're not really a slave. Yet what Paul says to slaves can also apply to modern employees. And he tells us to obey the boss. That we should tackle our duties as if Jesus himself had assigned them to us. We need to work with sincerity from the heart. As if we're serving Jesus himself, not just earning a paycheck. For verse 6 tells us, not with eye service, as men pleasers. And we've all seen this firsthand. The boss walks in the room and everybody gets busy. Everybody's shuffling papers, moving stuff around. And then suddenly he exits and what happens? Everybody slacks off. Goes back to their phone or their computer or whatever. That's eye service as men pleasers. That's not how we should work. Once a fellow was asked, are you looking for work? He replied, not really, but I would like a job. Sadly, that's the attitude all too often. We need to do our work as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. For me, the real measure of spiritual maturity is the ability to do whatever we do to the glory of God. Whether it's turning a wrench, or programming a computer, or servicing a customer, can we do it as unto the Lord? We all should be able to turn our work into worship. Verse 8, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. The eternal paycheck you receive won't be signed by your employer. It'll be signed by the Lord. And then verse 9 has some instructions for the bosses. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. A boss should always remember that he also has a boss. Thus he should treat his workers fairly and charitably. And you should recognize the revolutionary impact of Paul's instructions on marriage and on parenting and on labor. Understand, all ancient cultures taught that wives should submit to husbands and that children should obey their parents and that bond servants should labor for their masters. This was nothing new, but Christianity was the first and only faith To introduce the principle of reciprocal responsibility. That husbands also had an obligation to love their wives. And that parents shouldn't provoke their children. And that bosses shouldn't bully around their workers. You see the Christian ethic transformed both home and work. It altered every dimension of life. Which brings us to the third section of our book. We're seated in Christ. We've been called to walk worthy of our calling and now we need to stand against the devil. For like a child, a Christian learns to sit and then walk and then stand. Notice verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Boy, whenever it comes to dealing with the devil, human beings are prone to two mistakes. On the one hand, we underestimate him. See, Satan loves for us to think of him as a little imp in red leotards and horns and tail and pitchfork, a little cartoon character. Perhaps the devil's greatest feat is in making so many people think he doesn't exist. Don't take him seriously and you'll fall into his traps. But on the other hand, don't overestimate him. That's the second trap. Satan is not God's equal. He is infinitely inferior. He is a created being gone sour. An angel booted out of the choir because of a runaway ego. Yes, he has power, but God is greater. He has a greater power. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, You are of God, little children, and to overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We need to remember that Satan is a defeated foe. The only time the devil can hassle a Christian is when we let him. Today, Satan wields his power only because he's tolerated. He's ripping Christians off and stealing away our blessings. But he does so with a bluff and with a pop gun. We need to rise up As in James chapter 4 verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. On your own you're no match for the evil one. But Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. When you stand up to him and be strong, Satan will flee. For no one knows Satan's limitations better than he does. That's why seldom will Satan attack us head on. If he does, it causes us to run straight to Jesus, and then it's curtains for Satan. Thus, Satan prefers a bag of tricks. Rather than the frontal assault, Satan employs the wiles of the devil. He has his tricks, doubt, and fear, and jealousy, and condemnation, and discouragement, and dissension. Satan will do all he can to distract you from who you are and what you have in Christ. The devil wants to undermine our faith and rob us of our blessings. Thus Paul tells us, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, In the heavenly places. Never forget, guys, it is a spiritual battle. You know, you don't fight modern wars with swords and spears. And you don't fight spiritual battles with fleshly techniques. This is why we need spiritual weaponry. And God gives it to us, He gives us an armor. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Our job as Christians is to stand against the devil. He says, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Now understand, while Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he was chained to a Roman soldier. He thus had plenty of time to inspect the Roman armor. Paul uses the gear that was issued by the Roman legion as analogous to our spiritual armor. And the first item he mentions here is the belt of truth. You see, the ancients believed that the loins, that a person's abdominal area, was the seat of their emotions. Even today, we talk about gut feelings, don't we? And Satan loves to tinker with our emotions. See, if he can cause you to walk by feeling instead of by faith, he can sink you. And thus, Paul says, strap on the belt of truth. Just because you wake up one day and don't feel like a Christian, that doesn't mean you're not one. We need to bind up our feelings in the truth of the scripture. Rest on his immutable word, not our fickle and fleeting feelings. Don't let your devotion be determined by emotion. And then he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. The ancients viewed the heart as the seat of the desires. And for Paul, the heart needed to be protected. We need to nurture and cultivate godly desires. You know, conversely, Satan is quick to inflame old desires. You need to be on guard. Remember, you're not the same person you used to be. Your deepest desires have now changed. You need to remember that. And then verse 15, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You know, the Roman soldier wore a unique type of sandals. Their soles had stubs so that the soldier wouldn't slip on rocky terrain. And there are times when we can get blindsided and knocked off balance. Someone attacks our faith with questions we can't answer. We get confused. We're tempted to doubt In such times, we need to rest in God's peace. See, when there's confusion in your head, recall the peace that's in your heart. No one can deny the presence of God that you sense. No one can take away the miracle that Christ has worked in you. Let God's peace steady your faith until you have the opportunity to seek out the answers to those questions. And then verse 16, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. You see, the Roman shield was big enough to protect a soldier from a shower of flaming arrows. He would crawl under the shield and he'd wait out the attack. Realize instead of single thrust, Satan often lobs volleys of evil on us all at once. We had days like that. In those moments, we need to hold up our faith and just trust the Lord no matter what. Rest in your faith until the attack is passed. You know, it's interesting. The Roman shields were all gangable. In other words, they interlocked as a group so that the soldiers could join together. They could join shields and they could create a blanket of protection. And likewise, our faith is gangable. It gets stronger, guys, when we combine our faith and when we fellowship together. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation. The fallen world around us, it spews negativity and cynicism that can sour our outlook. This is why we need to take on some mind protection, a helmet, if you will. We need to safeguard our thoughts with God's good news. Be careful what you think. A football player would never go into a game without a helmet And we need to guard our perspective and our thoughts. Paul tells us in Colossians 3 verse 2, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. We all need to wear a helmet a helmet of salvation. Now before we leave our armor, notice the one part of the body that's not covered. Anybody? The back. That's right. There's nothing for our back. And guess why? Because God never wants us to retreat. That's not a posture we should take. Stand against the devil was the command. Don't run from him. Stand against him and he'll be forced to flee. The French Foreign Legion has a tremendous motto. I love it. If I falter, push me on. If I stumble, pick me up. If I retreat, shoot me. That should be our motto as Christians. God has no armor for our backs. And we're given two offensive weapons in the next two verses. First is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Man, your Bible, it's sharp, it's incisive, and it's powerful. And it's the sword of the Spirit. Under the Spirit's influence, the Scriptures slice to the heart of the matter. They shred the lies of Satan and they dissect our motives. The Scripture's powerful. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 10... One of David's mighty men, Eleazar, he fought the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. His hand froze to the sword's handle. He couldn't put it down. And this should be our attitude toward God's Word. And then verse 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication, for all the saints. Prayer is the heavy artillery man. From behind enemy lines, you can bomb the enemy's stronghold through prayer. You can blast away excuses and break down a person's defenses before you ever move in to share the gospel. We need to pray with all prayer and supplication. And then Paul encourages the Ephesians to pray, and while they're at it, he says. Please pray for me. He says, That utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Remember, Paul is writing in a rat-infested prison, but he's not whining. He sees his circumstances as an opportunity. If God has him in prison, it's to share his faith. And he asks them to pray, not for bail money, but for boldness to be a witness. And then verse 21, But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Tychicus was sent to Ephesus to deliver this letter and to update the church there on Paul's condition. The apostle closes with a benediction. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. Amen.